read our text from Mark chapter 4. One of the great stories of scripture we're all familiar with, probably. We've all heard um, of the quiet before the storm. But have you ever given much thought to the calm and the quiet after the storm? Have you ever made it through a storm? Have you ever been in the midst of something very scary like the hurricanes? I've never experienced a hurricane on the coast, but I've been through a couple of hurricanes here, probably the same ones you have. And uh, not long after I moved to North Carolina, there was one that came right there the same way. 70 plus mile per hour winds. That's kind of frightening. Um, and, and you're nervous. It's kind of awe-inspiring to watch, but it still um, kind of makes you a little nervous. You recognize the power that is in those storms. Or maybe you've been in a tornado or something like that, or even just a rough thunderstorm. But after you've made it through, you kind of wrote it out, so to speak, and the, the clouds and the sky looks amazing, and the air is different, and uh, finally you breathe like a sigh of relief, and you realize you made it, and all is good. And there's sort of a comfort in the quiet that follows. You know, the all that wind gives way to the silence, and there's kind of a comfort in that. Well, that's not the case for the disciples after their storm and when their calm came. And we'll look at that a little bit more in just a minute. You may recall that Jesus has been on, on the banks of the Sea of Galilee teaching and the crowds pushed him in, uh, pushed around him so, um, so intensely that he had to get into the boat and teach from the boat in the water. And he taught in parables. And uh, Mark gives us a few of the parables. And if you read back through chapter 4, you see all of those. And no doubt he had been not only teaching, but also performing miracles and um, getting rid of demons. In fact, that comes up. We, we studied a couple weeks back of chapter 5. And we see that very thing. But after having a long day of all these um, healings and this teaching. He says to his disciples, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And so they left the crowds and they go. And that's where we pick up this story. And of course, when he gets to the other side, it's when he encounters the demoniac. No doubt he's been tired, made tired from all of his work. And so it's no wonder, verse 38, we see that human, very human side of Jesus as he is asleep on the stern or in the stern on a pillow. The only time we ever read in scripture about Jesus sleeping. What a beautiful picture of his humanity, right? We see him in his complete 100% humanity. He was tired and asleep. And of course, we're about to see also 100% divinity. But before we look at all of that, I, I want to say something real quick about this storm. Um, the fact that Jesus was sleeping in it um, is amazing. But if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, I've never been there, but I've read about it. To this day, these types of sudden storms are very common there because it sits about 700 feet below sea level, making it the lowest freshwater lake on earth. 
And it sits at the bottom of the Jordan River Valley, surrounded by steep mountains and hills. And the valleys and the gorges between those mountains and valleys sort of funnel the wind down onto the lake. And it causes these violent storms to just come out of nowhere almost, so to speak. And that's the kind of storm that Mark is describing here. And that's why he said the storm arose. It almost just appeared from nowhere. We're also told that it was evening because usually, well, the storms come up at night. Or by nighttime, they're over. Usually, the storms come up in the day and they're over by nighttime. This is why most of the fishing there is done at nighttime, by the way. Because the storms are very common until late evening and night. And then to have a storm then was unusual. So this was kind of an unexpected occurrence for the disciples. The boat was probably, I don't know, if you've watched any Jesus movies, you always see different sizes. Sometimes there's these little boats that barely they could fit in. Um, there has been a, a boat actually discovered from the floor of the Sea of Galilee that was dated back to the first century, and it was about 27 feet long. So that's probably about maybe what they were in. But still, if it was crashing so much that they were afraid for their lives, it must have been pretty violent. It wasn't a tiny boat, but it wasn't gigantic, but the storm was huge. In fact, that's how Mark describes it. He uses the word, or the ESV says, great. It was a great storm. It's an interesting word that in Greek would be pronounced megas. We, you can see we get our word mega. This is big. This is a big storm. And I want you to notice that it's interesting right here in this these few verses that we read, Mark uses that very same term three times in a row. So it is a mega storm. Some translations have it fierce, much like a squall, a very fierce storm with gale force winds, almost hurricane-like. But then a few verses later, verse 39, after the great mega storm, there was a mega calm. Should be translated to mean completely or perfectly. It's like there was this stillness and then this mega storm and then it returned to complete stillness. And then in verse 41, we read that the disciples, fear was great. Same word, megas. Exceedingly, absolutely terrified, very much afraid. Mark uses these terms, obviously, for emphasis, but I think we can take some lessons from these three usages. Again, we usually take our greatest comfort from the storm after it's passed, and we realize what could have been. And we're thankful that whew, we didn't perish, we didn't lose anything. We all go out and check our cars and windshields and our houses and our roofing to make sure it's all still there. Because we just witnessed such... A magnificent power of nature and violent wind and other elements. And we survived. And we take comfort. But after this mega storm, 
And Jesus speaks to it, and there's this mega calm. Instead of the disciples being mega calm, they're mega fearful. They're afraid. They learn something about their God and about themselves. And I think it's here we could probably take just a few minutes and sort of glean some truths from what it means to be fearfully quiet because I think that's what they were. There was a greatness about them and it was their fear. Yet they remained quiet. I believe that's the only real posture we ought to have before God is a fearfully quiet one. I'm always struck by people that claim they've been in the presence of God or they've been to heaven or they've seen Jesus and they've talked to him in the way they act or react. And when I read scripture, the way people react and act when they're in the presence of God, it's way different. <laughs> There's no hooping and hollering and running around. There's a falling to your face because of fear. And so I'm not uh, throwing stones at the disciples. I want to kind of understand this. Because they were in the presence of the human Jesus and they saw him do great things. But I think at this moment, his complete divinity was made, their eyes were open to it and they were fearful. Suddenly, here's God able to do the things that he did. Maybe some of it they had taken for granted, but this one was awe-inspiring. So they become fearfully quiet before him. And of course, Jesus asked that question. Are you still without faith? Who's going to speak up after that, right? There's a, often this kind of response in Scripture, as I may mention to, for example, in Judges 13, Manoah, the father of Samson, after the angel of the Lord had spoken to him, Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. That wasn't even God. It was an angel. But that presence made them fearful. And we're familiar with Isaiah in chapter 6 of his prophecy where he found himself in the presence and some manifestation of God on his throne and he says, Woe am I, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was, a, he was saying things, but he felt like he couldn't even say anything because of the presence of God. His lips were even unclean. <clears throat> There's times where Ezekiel and Daniel have the same kind of experience. John, in his revelation, writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches and to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then... I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You may remember the transfiguration. At first, when Jesus was transfigured, the disciples, or the three there with him, were speaking. Hey, we should set up an altar. This is awesome. But then the voice of God thundered from heaven. 
from a cloud, we are told, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we read, they all fell down like dead men. In the presence of the Lord, the revelatory presence of God, when he sort of draws back the veil and gives people a deeper glimpse of who he is, especially his holiness and beauty and majesty and power and awesomeness, I think this is the only posture you can have is fearfully quiet. So notice these three lessons, I believe, for us here. Being fearfully quiet. Jesus is Lord of creation. We all know this. He is sovereign. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. That means He was there in the beginning, right? He was there at creation. Let us make man in our image. He was there for all the, let there be light, let there be water, let there be a vision. All those, he was there because he is the author of creation. We read that in Hebrews chapter 1. God who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I think this great fear came upon the disciples once they saw What they saw was their, once they saw what they felt was their greatest threat taken away, but then their eyes were open to what the bigger real threat was that they should have been fearful of, and that was God Himself. I believe what had happened, they gained a new depth, if you will, or understanding of the person of Jesus. We see that in their question Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey Him? I'll tell you who it can be, the one who made them. Calming these seas and the storm was no more astonishing than casting out demons or healing the sick. But somehow this was like a new revelation for the disciples. It opened their eyes to something they had not seen before. A side of Jesus that they had forgotten or just never realized. I think all this just started coming into a clearer view. No wonder he teaches as one having authority. He has all authority. Even the winds obey him. The seas obey him. Because he has authority over them. R.C. Sproul commented, he said, The very word authority has within it the word author. An author is someone who creates and possesses a particular work. Insofar as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of his creation. He is the foundation upon which all other authority stands or falls. I believe that the disciples caught a glimpse of sovereignty and the holiness and the authority of Christ. And that's why they trembled and they became quiet. They were fearful. Suddenly they realized the storm wasn't their problem. Probably nothing else they thought that was their problem was their problem. 
greatest thing they had to fear was God. And his holiness. You know, it's just a great reminder that the Christian God, the God of the Bible, would, could never have been invented by man. Because man would have never created a God that was holy. If you look at all the inventions of man, all the idolatrous so-called gods that men have created, they would never create one more terrifying than the force that they wanted to contain. In other words, they'll create a God in their mind that could overcome the elements, but they wouldn't think about that God being more fearful or fear and awe-inspiring than the elements themselves. And here's this God that all of a sudden the disciples had to be thinking there could be nothing more terrifying than this. A God who holds the very most powerful thing that we could think of in his hands and has authority over it. So when confronted with the one true living God, instantly they, they realized no force of nature, nothing they could imagine could be more powerful than this. So they have the fear of God. We need to take some time to be fearfully quiet before God, the God of all creation. He's holy and awesome. We've sort of got in the evangelical church where we teach people, oh, you don't have to fear God. You know, he's really nice. And no, we don't fear God as far as I have no condemnation now because of Christ. He will never take me away from himself. He'll never cast me away from his holy presence. I can't lose my salvation. But God is one to be feared. We need to fear him. Because of his awesomeness. Jesus said, fear the one who has the power to destroy both body and soul and hell. Now again, as the people of God, we don't fear hell, but we should fear God. I think that's healthy and right. Because he's God and he's holy and he's awesome. I love that passage um, that Michael read for, for us from Exodus. God thunders down the Ten Commandments. The people hear it clearly. They're not worried about whether or not they can keep the commandments. They're worried about God. He said, hey, Moses, from now on, you talk to us. Do not let God talk to us, lest we all die. Not only were they silent before God, but they wanted God to be silent. They didn't want to hear from him anymore. They were terrified. Because he's holy and awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's correct. Secondly, there is safety and obedience. Here's another lesson the disciples learned that we should know. The safest place in the world to be is in submission to the will of God. Now, The disciples were in for the ride of a lifetime here. They get into this boat and they have no idea the storm's coming. But I think it's important to note they weren't running from God. This was not Jonah getting in a boat fleeing to, to Tarsus. These were the disciples saying, looking at Jesus, him saying, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. And they said, 
Okay, master, let's get in the boat. And go. They were obedient. They weren't running. They weren't sinful. I mean, I'm sure they were sinful in their thoughts and obviously they were lacking faith. But from a human perspective, they weren't being disobedient. They were being obedient Yet, they think they're about to die. They're going to die for their obedience. That seems, that seems in, out of kilter, so to speak, in the way that we've been taught to think. If you just do what's right and do what God wants you to do, you'll be fine. But here they were being perfectly obedient, at least at that moment in time. And yet they're in a storm and it looks like they're all going to die. I think it's important to not miss this, that God is always up to things that we cannot see. And we should never be fooled into thinking that following Christ is the, is the way to ease and comfort in this world. It's not. And I know we can't be perfectly obedient. I know we can't even obey without sinning, usually. But we can't deny that the Bible over and over commands us to be obedient and to be faithful and to be cognizant of what God is expecting of us. And when I say in the submission to the will of God, at this very moment, they knew what the will of God was because he said, get in the boat. They got in the boat. Yet, in their minds, they have to be thinking, wow, what have we done to deserve this? All we've done is follow Jesus and now we're about to die. And so I do want to say this. You could be, if it's possible, you find yourself perfectly obedient to the word of God as you know it. And suddenly realize your boat's taking on water and you're about to go down. You may realize you're in a boat that's too small to handle the ride. You may start thinking, where's God? And you may even be thinking, he must be asleep. But when we live in repentance and obedience, and I know that repentance is a gift. And really, what little bit of obeying we do is a gift from God. But that's the safest place to be. When we're doing what God has called us to do, or trying to obey Him, looking to His Word, and trying to discover who He is, and being faithful to try to proclaim the gospel and build the church. So what if the ship sinks? That's the whole point, right? We're in obedience. This is why every week we are reminded that there is a persecuted church out there. Jesus said, blessed are those who suffer for righteousness sake. It's not that they're righteous. It's not even that their deeds are righteous. They are suffering for the gospel. And Jesus of the gospel is righteous. And so when we are in obedience to him and trying to live our lives be faithful husbands and faithful uh, parents and faithful church members. And we're trying to be faithful to the gospel. That could bring us up as a target. And we may suffer. And we may even suffer unto death. But that will be just translation, right? I found this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. She said, God is God, and because he is God, he is worthy of my trust and obedience. 
I will find rest nowhere but in his holy will, a will that is unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. J.C. Ryle, you may have heard of him, said obedience is the only reality. It is faith visible, faith acting, faith manifest. It is the test of real discipleship among the Lord's people. Through obedience, we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ because it is through obedience that we discover more and more of him and less of us. I think that's probably why Jesus asked this question to them. You still have no faith? It was a chance for them to grow, a chance for them to see, wow, I thought we were, we all thought we were about to die. That was awful. And for what? We had the very God of creation, the one who made the storm, was in the boat with us. He was asleep. We were afraid we were going to die. Now that says a lot about all of our faith, doesn't it? Jesus is asleep. We're on the edge of the boat thinking, this is the end. We're dying. God doesn't care about us. Look at him back there. Rather than thinking, well, he's asleep. Why would I be worried about this? But I think that's the revelation they didn't come to until later. Oh, he's the author of this. He is the one who sends the storms. You can't deny that if you read scripture because we're told that. He's the one who sends the storms. So that brings me kind of this last point. Trials Produce trust. So be fearfully quiet before God because trials produce trust. And I would assume, again, that's the point of Jesus asking here, how is it you still have no faith? And interestingly, the early church often saw this text as a great comfort for suffering and persecution. Now, I wouldn't have thought that. If, if the first century church being abused and mistreated and constantly persecuted and martyred. What text would you go to? Oh, that time when Jesus was sleeping in a ship and the disciples were afraid and they thought they were about to die and they hadn't done anything wrong in, from, a, from a human perspective. So they saw in the sudden storm and the gale force wind, the early church saw the wind as the enemies and the spiritual forces trying to attack the church and they saw the church as the ship tossed to and fro in the storm. An unlikely candidate for survival in such turmoil, yet the church had all she needed for Christ was but asleep in the stern on a pillow. And so what comfort the church found in the fact that even in unlikely circumstances, the church will survive and make it safely to the other side. And so too can we, church. Because come on, we know that the prosperity gospel is a sham. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't bless us and that we don't have peace and that we don't have the things we need. And sometimes, and oftentimes, all of us probably could be honest and say we've even been blessed above and beyond what we ever thought or certainly what we desire, uh, deserved. But we also know that that's a sham to suggest that if you just do what's right and be obedient, then you're going to have all you ever need and everything will be perfect. And I don't know, I guess you'll live forever or something. But then when you're stuck and you 
find out the reality of this life and this sin-sick, sin-saturated world, you get a bad diagnosis or you find out somebody you love and care for is sick or has even died or you find out that people just don't like you because you dare spoke up for truth. They find out that you don't think murdering babies is a good thing. Or whatever it is. You can be confident of what the Bible says. This momentary affliction is working a far greater and eternal weight of glory. What a great word. Or Romans 5. We also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. Spurgeon said, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we're made of. What we'll find out usually is we have a pretty shallow root system. Right? A little bit of rain, a little bit of wind will be dug up and gone were it not for Jesus himself. But again, I think that's good and healthy. Sometimes we need, oftentimes we need to be reminded just how dependent we are upon Christ. may not have heard of Edmund Clowney, but this is a statement that he made about this. Trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in him that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. It's just a fact of the kingdom. And one further truth about this trial, and I'll close, it came right in the midst of what some of these disciples knew best. They were fishermen. They were on the Sea of Galilee. They were used to these boats. They knew about the storms. They were experts, yet they found themselves in desperation and unable to resolve their situation. Man, that's a good word for where we are often. The places that I think I've got under control, the places I think I can handle, Right there in the middle of that, God came to them and said, "This can be turned. You could be gone in a second. You don't have any control. You don't have any ability to stop what is happening, were it not for God." John Newton, who wrote, of course, "Amazing Grace," is what he's most famous for. But his story is incredible. If you're not familiar, you should read it. He said this, it's not necessary that our sharpest trials, it is necessary that our sharpest trials should sometimes spring from our dearest comforts. Else we should be in danger of forgetting ourselves and setting up our rest here. Those kind of thoughts, um, even as I'm saying them, bring a little bit of fearfulness to me at this moment. Because I'm thinking, where are my dearest comforts? Where are the things I'm most, I feel like I'm most able to handle and I don't even really need God. You know, we don't say it, but it could be written, I'm good here, God. I, I've got this part. I just need you over here and over there. And this passage and in, in, in some of these people and their quotes remind us that maybe right there where God comes to you and, and makes you fearfully quiet. That'll be a good thing because 
it'll change us. The disciples were changed. And they kept being changed. And I know that they their faith fails again and it comes back again. And the humanity in that is humbling. But it's a great reminder that it's not us, we that have to hold on during the storms. It's God that holds on to us during the storm. And he always has and he always will. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I do thank you for these kinds of learning opportunities. And just to be able to see that even those who walked with Jesus every day, as soon as trouble came up, they were fearful. They returned to what they knew best, and that is their human abilities. And all the while, you were sleeping in the, in the boat with them. But they didn't even know to take comfort in that. And so often we're the same. Things happen. Life hits us in the face. And we're, we're reminded that you're in control of all things. And we need to be reminded of that. And that even when calamity comes, as Isaiah said, you're the author of that. Not of sin. Not of wickedness. But you're the author of of those things that come at us that would seem to destroy us, there's nothing that's outside of your sovereign control. And that gives us hope instead of fear. But while it's coming at us, we are fearful. We understand that part. Because most of us really, we've, we're learning to trust you, but we've never really had to be out there at the end of the plank where there's nothing between us and certain death except you. God, we don't want that, but we want that kind of faith. So I pray that you would help give it to us. And our faith will be strengthened. And that we can pass that on to our children. And they can see it in our lives and see this real faith. And the world around us would see it. God, that we would fear you in the way that we're supposed to. But also, we'd be reminded that um, we have great comfort in you, too. You are our Father, and we are children, so we take comfort in that. We love you, and thank you for the way you take care of us, and the faith that you have blessed us with, in Jesus' name. Amen.